All right, so tonight, a brand new series we kick off, right? You see it on the screens. Yeah, hopefully you grab one of the little bookmarks on your way in. Uh, I thought, why not let you see what we're going to be looking at in advance? So you like that idea? Yes. All right, we'll try, to, we'll try to remember to do that in the future. We almost always know what we're going to be doing in advance. Why not let you know as well? And so for some of you, that can be helpful if you want to look ahead, read ahead, prepare, whatever might help you in that process. Great Prayers in Scripture is the title of this series, and this is, uh, I think, will be a fascinating little study. It's only six weeks long. You see the dates there. And we're going to look at great prayers in the Bible. Now, how do you determine a great prayer? Because uh, any prayer in the Bible should be great, right? Uh, so it was, it was somewhat subjective. And I don't know, there's, there's one on there that you're like, oh, I never even thought about that one, the May 11th one. Did any of you think that would have made the top six list? <laughs> Hezekiah's petition. Uh, but we wanted to put one in there that's a little bit different as well. And so, in fact, I believe that is one that uh, Pastor Russell is, is teaching that night. But uh, most of these other ones are very, very familiar to, to many of you. And uh, the, the purpose for looking at these prayers is not just a historical look at great prayers in the Bible. But really, it's an opportunity, I think, for us to grow in our own prayer life. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Uh, because when we look at others in Scripture and how they prayed, I'm thinking I can learn a little something from them and how they pray. But here's what I think, maybe even more importantly, that will help us. As we study these prayers in Scripture, I think we're going to learn a whole lot more about who God is, and his character, and we're also going to learn a whole lot more about who we are as sinners saved by grace. And that's what we'll even see in our, our study tonight. And so I really think as we learn more about who God is, I think that's going to impact our prayer life. I think that's going to have a, a profound impact on how we pray with our understanding of who God is, the character of God. So as we get started, I want to have a word of prayer, and then uh, I'm going to ask you a question about your own prayer life. Father, I uh, pray for this time of Bible study tonight as we kick off this series. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I know I'm super excited about the opportunity to teach the passage tonight as we look at David's prayer in Psalm 51. But God, I pray that uh, through this study that we will be challenged in our own walk with you, in our own devotion to you, our own commitment to spend time with you in prayer, talking with you, listening to you, getting to know you, sharing with you what is on our heart, confessing to you our shortcomings, praising you for who you are, adoring you, lifting up your name and acknowledging you and who you are. God, I do pray for these next few moments. God, just open our hearts and our minds that, uh, that, we, would, uh, that we would learn from, the, from the, the teaching, the reading of your word and the study of your word. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, anybody in here like just totally satisfied with where you are with your prayer life? It's like couldn't get any better. Anybody? No, right? No, none of us would dare raise our hand. We would never say, I have arrived when it comes to prayer. I've got this prayer thing down. In fact, those people aren't even here, right? They don't need to come. They're like, oh, I've got the prayer thing down. I don't need to be there. Hopefully, though, if we're honest, we all would say, yes, I need to grow more 
in my prayer life. Have you ever been reading like a biography of somebody uh, that's a, a, um, somebody that we use the word great, uh, somebody that's been known to be great in their faith, great in their own walk with the Lord, teaching of the Lord, reading one of those biographies. And, and, and maybe it talks about they got up at 3 a.m. and spent two hours on their knees in prayer every day. You know, so much that, that, the, that the, the wood was worn out where their knees were. And you're thinking, wow, first of all, 3 a.m., really? Two hours, really? On my knees that long? I mean, if I got on my knees right now, probably two minutes, and I'm like, I can't do it anymore, right? It starts to hurt. But there have been men and women that have been that committed. And not so much the posture. Posture, I think, does play a role in prayer. But the commitment to spend time in prayer with the Lord. Is that important to our faith? I think we'd all go, yeah, absolutely. But yet we still struggle with it, don't we? We still struggle. We make a commitment. I'm going to spend more time in, in, in praying uh, this year in 2022. And I, 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 I'll... I hate to admit how many times I've failed in my own personal commitment to say, I want to grow this much or have this much more prayer in my own life, only to find myself falling back in some of the same old habits. And so maybe as we look at these prayers in Scripture, maybe even as we look at this prayer tonight, that we'll find ourselves being convicted and challenged to spend more time. And maybe it's not so much the quantity necessarily is, is the quality of our prayer time. Because sometimes I think there can be this amazing time in a very short amount of time. It can be very sweet with the Lord. But we can become so distracted, so our minds so preoccupied, uh, so caught up in all these other things that even if we're sitting and praying, praying for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, there's very little prayer and there's a whole lot more just worrying about what's going on or what's happening that day. That's a little longer than I meant to spend uh, in our introduction, but I, I really hope that we will grow in our, tonight, especially grow in our understanding of who God is, His character, understand a little bit more about who we are as sinners saved by grace for those of us in Christ, and hopefully that will challenge us to want to pray more. So open your Bibles to, to Psalm chapter 51, and we're going to look at David's prayer of confession. And as we, as we get to this, uh, and by the way, the, the, the outline is pretty simple tonight. I will put the, there's six parts of this prayer. In fact, most commentators will divide up this prayer into these same, almost exact six parts. So I've not created anything unique here, but we'll look at these six. I'll put the headings as we come to them on the screen, but that's about all I'm going to put up there. Uh, we're going to do a lot of diving into different sections during this, but we'll look at, you'll we'll have those headings. So if you are a note taker, and I know we've got some good note takers, I think, most of the, all the really good note takers are over here on this side. No, I'm just kidding. I see a lot of pens and pens. Oh, there's some over here too. Good. All right. Uh, well, I'll try to make it easy. And if you have a question, if I go too fast, just holler out. But look at a little bit of context. And what's nice about Psalm 51 is we get some context right out of the gate on, on this. When he says in Psalm 51, at the top of your Bible, before we even get to verse 1, we have this kind of this subheading. And I want to read that. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David... When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And so we get a little bit more information than we typically will get on a psalm right here. We get some, some historical context for us. 
First thing is, we see that this psalm was written for the choir master. This was meant to be used in, in, in Israel's worship. And it was written by who? David. Not a trick question. It's right there. And then the subtext there, uh, the subheading, it's the Psalm of David. It's a very famous Psalm of David, but it was a Psalm of David. And then we get the historical context of why David wrote this Psalm. And this part is so important to our understanding of this particular Psalm. When it says, when Nathan the prophet went to him, that's David, after he had gone in to Bathsheba. In other words, what we're going to hear is what David wrote after Nathan the prophet confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba and also the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And to see that, we need to flip over in our Bibles. And I told you to open to Psalm 51 because we wanted to look at that first. But let's flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 11 because I, we really need to have a good recap of what has happened that has led up to this particular point. Second uh, Samuel, I'm in first. Second Samuel chapter 11. Many of you are familiar with this, this, this particular passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to just kind of do a recap. And so here we have, it says, at the beginning in verse 1, it says, in the spring, when kings were to go out to battle, right? Uh, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and the rest of his forces. But what does David do? He stays back, right. He stays back. I love it that there was a, there was a season for battle. It was the spring. Like, that was, like you have baseball season, football season, battle season. It was the spring, the time when you went to, went to fight. Maybe the weather was better. It was more, more fun to, to fight in the spring. I don't know. But that, I just thought that, was, that always makes me chuckle a little bit. But David stays back. And, and, and while David probably should have been in the battle, I don't think that's the only thing that was the cause for his, his sin because this could have happened even when it wasn't the season for battle. He could have fallen to the sin any time. But we do see here that this is what's happened, that the men are out fighting. He's back home. It's in the afternoon, late in the afternoon. He's up on his rooftop enjoying his leisure time there in his nice palace up on the rooftop. He glances over and because he's got a beautiful view of many of the homes and areas around him, he sees a woman bathing, a beautiful woman bathing. And there's the temptation, right? And he asks, he finds, he asks someone, who is this woman? He finds out that she's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And he uh, then realizes, you know, that she's married, but he continues with this temptation and has her come over to his house. Therein lies the beginning from going from a temptation to a sin. Because now, as the king, he has the authority to pretty much tell anybody to do whatever he wants them to do. And so now he is abusing that God-given authority that he's given, having this married woman come over to his house, and as you know the story, has sex with her. She goes home. Shortly after that, finds out she's pregnant. Sends word to David. David hears that she's pregnant. Now David realizes his sin could be exposed. His sin could be exposed, and he's concerned. So he begins plan A. Plan A sounds like a pretty good idea, especially if you're trying to cover up your sin. Let's get Uriah, her husband, from the battlefield back home. Let him spend time with his wife, and everything will seem okay when she tells everybody she's pregnant. And it'll just be his. So he sends for Uriah. Uriah comes home. Uriah, David welcomes him and 
uh, ask him how things are going with the battle, a little small talk, and then talk, and he says, why don't you go on home and, and spend the night with, with your wife before heading back? And he leaves David's house, but what does he do? He doesn't go home, does he? In fact, he sleeps right outside of David's house with David's servants uh, on the ground. He says, I can't do that. My, my fellow, you know, soldiers are back there. They are sleeping on the ground. I can't go home and sleep in my bed and sleep, be with my wife. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to stay here. Well, they tell David that, and David, plan A doesn't work. Plan B goes to Uriah and says, hey, why don't you stay another night? And why don't you come have dinner with me? So he has Uriah come have dinner, feeds him this great feast, gives him way too much to drink, gets him drunk, and then he sends him on home thinking, surely he'll go home now. But what does he do? Doesn't go home either. Plan B, another failure. So now, plan C, David writes a note to his commander, says, have Uriah go in with some other people, lead the forces into the fiercest battle, and then have everybody else pull out except for Uriah, and then he'll die. So he writes this note. Guess who carries the note to the commander? Uriah he carries that own note. Doesn't know it. It's sealed, obviously, with the king's seal, but he carries it. That plan is enacted. This plan works. Not only is Uriah killed, but we read also that some other men are killed as well. So other people lost their lives because of David's sin. And Uriah is dead. Word gets back to David that Uriah, along with some other men, have been killed. Word gets back to Bathsheba as well, that her husband's killed. She mourns. And after she's mourned for a while, David has her come to the house, and he takes her on as his wife. So he's thinking, okay, plan C has worked. The end of chapter 11. And by the way, look at the end of, of chapter 11. Look what, it, look what it says. And David, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But this last sentence, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Displeased the Lord. So, chapter 12. Nathan shows up. The prophet Nathan shows up to see David. We don't know how long after this has happened, but probably fairly, fairly soon. Nathan shows up at David's doorstep and comes to visit David. And Nathan has a story to tell David. Nathan's story goes like something like this. David, there were once two men in this town. One was very, very wealthy and one had very, very little. And the one that had a lot had just all kinds of, of livestock and and riches and all that he needed. And the poor man had very little, but he had bought this one little ewe lamb and they had raised this ewe lamb and it had become part of their family. And they loved that. In fact, it had become like a daughter to this man. You know, any of you have had a, a very close pet, you can relate to this story, right? If you, you know, you probably haven't had a lamb that was that close of a pet, but maybe you had a, have had a dog or a cat that was become part of your family. And that's the way this lamb had become part of this poor man's family. Well, the rich man has has company coming into town, and he wants to fix a, a, a wonderful feast for his, his, his visitors that are in town. And so instead of going and getting one of his own livestock and slaughtering it, what does he do? He goes and takes this poor man's one lamb that's like a family member and slaughters it and uses that to feed his friends that are coming. Well, David hears this story, and just like you and I, when we hear that story, we're like, what in the world? Who... Who could ever do that? person should die for that. They should be punished for that. And he's thinking of all the things that should happen. And, and Nathan calmly just looks at David and says, you are that man. 
You are that man. In that moment, David feels the conviction of his sin, the weight of his sin that he had been covering up, that maybe he had been just kind of pushing down. But all of a sudden, the, the guilt and, the, and everything that he felt comes flying to the forefront in that moment. And he's, he's, a, he's a broken man in that moment. And he gets all the way to verse 13. And, and Nathan goes on and on and, and just one by one points out David's sins after he comes to that conviction. But then in verse 13 of chapter 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Because David's thinking he's dead. He, he deserves to die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So that's, that is the background. So now we get to Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are somewhat similar. They're very much connected. And we'll see that connection. But Psalm 51 is David's very personal, very raw confession of his sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the nation of Israel, and ultimately against God. And it just comes out as we'll read it in just a minute. Psalm 32 was probably written a little bit later, maybe after David had, had time to reflect and David wanted to use this as a moment, as we'll see, to teach other sinners. But there is definitely a connection, and we'll see that connection a little bit later. Uh, but as we start, we're getting out of the introduction almost. This is something that, I, as I see, there's six sections, but really there's two primary main sections. David's two greatest needs are pardon and purity. He needs God's forgiveness, but he also realizes he needs, he needs God's work, miraculous work in his heart because he realizes he is a sinner and will continue to be a sinner. And that will also mean that he will continue to be tempted to do what he's already done in the past. And so he's crying out for God for pardon and for purity. So let's read Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." Do you, do you feel the, the, the cry, the plea, the emotion in this, in this prayer of confession of David? And I think as we go through it, you'll see even more of, 
of how David is hurting, how David is feeling the weight of what he's done. And he's crying out to God for God to hear and God to forgive. So we start with the very first thing, the cry for forgiveness in these first two verses. And what basis does David have to cry out for God's forgiveness based on what we read here in verse one? What's the basis that he's coming before God on? Mercy. Mercy. He knows he can't go to God on the basis of justice, right? He is, he is, he was guilty. I mean, he deserves death. So he's crying out on the basis of mercy. What a great reminder for us as we approach God with our own faults, with our own failures, with our own sin, with our own transgression, that the only basis that we can come before a holy and righteous God is on the basis of his great Mercy. In fact, he says, have mercy on me, O God. And then a little bit later in verse one, he says, according to your abundant mercy. He said, God, I know you are a merciful God and I am, I am crying out to you on the basis of that mercy. But he's also crying out on the basis of God's love as well. He, he realizes that, that and, and David knew, knows the character of God. That's what's so amazing. I think David knows the scriptures. David knows the scriptures. David has experienced God's amazing faithfulness over the years. He's seen God work miracles in his life. He has seen how the character of God displayed over and over. And so he understands. And that's why I think he can have a prayer like this where he knows he deserves death. He knows he deserves God's judgment and wrath. But yet he can come before God because he also knows God is a loving and merciful God. And the only basis that he can come to God as a sinner, is on the basis of God's love and God's mercy. God's mercy is abundant. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Amen. I am so grateful for His abundant mercy. Now, as we read these first couple of, of verses, do you think that David had an accurate assessment of his sin condition? Are you really, it really kind of comes through. He, he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He uses three different words to describe his sin. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Now the word transgression means a crossing of a boundary. A crossing of a boundary. It also has this, at, this idea of an attitude of rebellion. You know, you know, have, have, have you ever been told, you know, this is, this is where you're not, you know, don't go past this. And our natural, not, not everybody, but a lot of our natural inclination, inclination is, well, how close can I get to that line? And will anybody know if I go over the line? Growing up, it was just two boys, me and my brother and the family. And we would go on family vacation. And we were, you know, it was before the minivan and all that. So we just had a back seat for us on these long trips. And we would draw a line down the middle. Or my parents would say, this is the line. Don't cross the line. <laughs> Guess what? Inevitably, one of us would always cross the line, leading to one of us or both of us getting in trouble. And don't make me stop this car. That was a very familiar tune we heard, two boys in the back seat getting into trouble. But we want to cross that boundary. David knew that he had crossed God's boundary. And he's asking God to blot out that transgression. He then says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That word iniquity means twistedness or perverse perversion. We might refer to this as depravity or original sin. And we'll get more to that in just a minute because David really understood this understanding of 
of original sin or total depravity that we all have as descendants of Adam. And then the third word, he uses the word sin, cleanse me from my sin. And we know that that word means missing the mark, missing the mark of God's perfection. And David knew he had fallen way, way short of missing God's perfection. And so he throws all three of this, just trying to emphasize the seriousness of what he's done with Bathsheba, what he's done with Uriah, what he's done against the nation of Israel and against, especially against God. And so he's just crying out for forgiveness. Blot out, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me. All these are a cry for God to forgive. And I thought about that. That's a great way to start all our prayers. I know a lot of times prayers, you know, you start with your praise and adoration. And I think that's good too. But I think maybe even before we get to the praise, how can I praise God with unclean lips, unclean heart? The first thing probably I need to do is just cry out to God for his forgiveness. Because is there a time where, if we're honest, that we can begin a prayer that there's not a need for confession and forgiveness? Probably not. Probably not. I know for me. And so David understood that. And David had a huge burden. But maybe we don't have that huge burden. Maybe we haven't killed anybody. Maybe we haven't committed adultery. But we have sin. There are sins in our lives that are displeasing to God. There is iniquity. There is that transgression, that sin in our lives that we come before God on the basis of His mercy, crying out for His forgiveness in our lives. Number two, the second part of this prayer of confession in David is his confession of sin. Confession of sin. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. And against you, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, before we look specifically at David's confession here in these four verses, I want you to notice how personal his cry for forgiveness and confession is. Now, we just looked at verses one through two, but even in those verses one through two, we see the word I and me several times. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgression. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse three, for I know my transgression and my sin. Only you have I sinned. And it goes on about 12 or 13 times in the first six verses. He's talking about his own sin. He's, he recognizes the personal nature of what he's done. He is owning up to his sin. We don't have a lot of that in our culture today, do we? What do we like to do? Blame somebody else, right? Or maybe just rationalize it. It's not that bad. Other people do this. I could be doing a lot of worse. But here's David. Now, admittedly, David's was bad in this moment, but the principle's the same. Sin is sin before a holy God, right? And we need to say, we need to say yes, my, this is sin in my life, and I need to identify that as sin. We don't like to do that. We don't like to do that. Whether it's as a culture or even as Christians, we don't like to do that. But here David is broken, he's convicted, he's remorseful, and he is confessing and crying out in a very personal way to God. And that's, that's what we see in verse 4 when he says, For I know my transgressions. David is aware of his sin. David is aware of his sin. And this is, and this is uh, just to piggyback on what I just said, this is a critical point for all of us as Christians because I really believe many of our spiritual problems are connected with the fact that we don't recognize our sin as sin. We don't believe ourselves to be sinners. I'm a pretty good person compared to other people. We need to see ourselves a whole lot more as sinners 
and a less like good people that we tend to want to do. And we get that reinforced all the time because someone will come up and say, Rich, you're such a good guy. You, you know, you're helping people. You're serving. You're such a good... And, and, and Rich laughs because he knows his own heart, just like I would too. I know when people say that, I'm like, all right, I know who I really am. But we kind of like that. And he, yeah, I'm, and we can kind of buy into our own press clippings, right? Yeah. People think I'm good because I do this and do that. But David was aware of his transgressions, for I know my transgressions. Can you say that? For I know my transgressions. Yes, you do. And look what else he says. My sin is ever before me. That's what sin will do. It'll stay there. And, and David also, look what he says in verse 4 also. He, said, he recognizes that his sin is against God. He says, against you, you only have I sin. Now, some might argue like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Uriah? Didn't he sin against those other men that happened to innocently die in that battle? Didn't he sin against them? And well, yes, he did. But ultimately, he sinned against God because God's the one that created the laws. God's the one that created the people. So ultimately, he's not downplaying his sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah. In fact, if anything, he's elevating and saying, ultimately, he has sinned against a holy God that has set these commands, has set these boundaries, has set these guidelines, has set these rules. And so when we break those, yes, we commit offenses against other people, but our sin is against God. We might commit an offense or a crime, but our sin, our transgression is against the holy God. And David recognized his sin as being against God. Verse five is interesting as well. It comes back to what he had said a little bit earlier, that David knows that his sin comes from his depravity as a sinner or being a sinner. David knows that his sin comes from his depravity as a sinner. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. So here's David's statement is really the equivalent of what we would call today the doctrine of original sin. And, 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 and it says, well, wow, that's pretty, pretty amazing. I think back to David's understanding of the character of who God truly is and understanding the character and nature of him as a sinner, understanding that, that, that there was evil in his heart and that it wasn't just something that he did once and he'll be okay moving forward. No, he was born that way. And, he, and again, he's not blaming his mom here. Almost Somebody might say, well, is he blaming his mom for this sin? No, no, no. He's just saying he, like everybody since Adam, has been born with this depraved nature. That's just who we are. And he's acknowledging that. He's not downplaying his sin. He's recognizing that he is a sinner who has, has grievously sinned against God. So it's, it's both, right? I am a sinner, and because I am a sinner, I will sin. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I start a sinner. We're all born sinners. And then because we're sinners, we will, in fact, sin. Another thing we see in this section, verse 6, David's desire for inner purity. Remember I mentioned David's greatest needs are pardon and purity. And here we see this desire for inner purity coming out. He's going to develop it. It's going to flesh out a whole lot more as it goes on. But it starts here in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You delight in truth in the inward being. And so it's really kind of the positive side of what he's just said in verse 5. And he's teaching here that God desires this inward purity in the lives of his children, in the hearts of his children. And God wants David's transformation not to be, okay, I did wrong and I'll, I'll try real hard never to do that again. No, he wants it to go all the way to the inner. I love these two phrases, the inward being and the secret heart that can know that wisdom of God. See, David wasn't crying out for some superficial reform. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry I did that and I'll try to be better. No, he's crying out for something much deeper because he knew that not only did he need the forgiveness, the pardon, but he needed the purity. And we're going to see how he cries out for that a little bit later, how God, he prays for God to do that in his life. The application here in this section, and we'll wrap up number two and move on to number th section three in just a minute here. But we see the great, I shouldn't say great, we see the transparency and genuineness, genuineness the authenticity in David's prayer here. And this is what I love, that, that, that he, he recognizes that what goes on inside here should line up with what he says here and what he does outside here. That there needs to be this inward consistency of his character that happens with his behavior. And I, I would apply this in our lives today as Christians that we can, we can go to church, we can carry our Bible, we can even read our Bible, we can have good Bible knowledge, good Bible information, we can even serve and do things good in the church. But inwardly, there's unconfessed sin. There's terrible things happening in our mind and our thoughts, perhaps even being played out somewhere where we think other people aren't seeing them, all while playing a role in church. And I don't think that happens a whole lot here at McGregor, but I do think it happens to different degrees and different levels here because we all have that tendency to be less transparent. I don't want you to know everything that's going on in my heart, just like you probably don't want me to know everything that's going on in your heart right now either. And so we can put up a good front. We can put up a good mask. We can put up a good role. Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 12 when he talks about not being hypocritical. And that word hypocrite means wearing a mask, putting on a show. David had been, when Nathan confronted him with his sin, it was just laid bare. And I've had a chance to be in counseling sessions and, and in situations with people where their, their sin, their, what they would consider a terrible sin, has been exposed. And it's just out there now for, for people to know. And, and the embarrassment that comes with that initially, but also the freedom that now the confession, I can, I can deal with this in a very real way. Because as long as we're hiding something, let's say Nathan didn't confront David. That's the way it happened in God's providence that Nathan confronted David. What happened if Nathan had never confronted David and David continued with that? Do you think Bathsheba might not have been the last one that that had happened with? Maybe that would have become more of a habit in David's life. Who knows the trajectory of David's life had not Nathan confronted him and dealt with it and exposed his sin. And so if you ever have anybody that, that tries to, to kind of worm their way into your life and kind of expose something or try to says they think something's going wrong in your life and you put up the wall right away, hey, that's none of your business. Just for a moment say, well, maybe I need to be a little more like David and let someone else in a little bit that might be able to help me in a struggle that I'm dealing with. Or maybe on your own, just saying, I'm willing to come before God and confess everything. And maybe to a brother uh, or a sister that I can, uh, can, I can confide in and, and confess my sin and come clean before God and before another person so that God can begin to do the work that he's going to do in David's life or what David's crying out for, what we're going to see in just a moment. But I pray that we play less of a role as Christians and what's going on on the inside reflects what's going on on the outside and vice versa. I guess a good question to ask right now if you think about applications, what do you need to confess to God right now? Is there anything you need to confess? Is there anything that, that, is, that is in your life? And by the way, if you pray that prayer, God, is there anything in my life? Search my, search my heart. Know me. Show me anywhere in my life that I need to, to make adjustments, make changes, make confession before you. 
and you start praying that seriously, watch out. <laughs> He'll start showing you stuff and be ready to, to deal with it. All right, the third thing we see is a plea for cleansing. A plea for cleansing. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David continues with this pattern of threes. You notice he had three words for sin and he, he uses these, these patterns of three as he goes through this. And now he has a list of three things he asks God to do. Purge, wash, and blot out. Purge, wash, and blot out. Uh, and, and they're the same words he used in verse two, right? The, the order's been reversed, if you notice that. He used these exact same words, but now he's reversed them. So let's look at these. The first one is purge me with hyssop. That word purge is actually based on, on the Hebrew word sin, and it means to descend me, <laughs> to, to descend me, to, to purge me. It kind of makes sense, right? To, to purge me of my sin. He wanted to be clean before God. We're going to come back to the hyssop in just a moment because he says, purge me with hyssop. Then he says, wash me. And, and, and notice the confidence after he says, and wash me just makes sense. If you, you know, the, the stain of sin is, is, is there before him. He says, wash me and I shall, and I shall be whiter than snow. David, again, knowing the character of God, knowing the mercy of God and how God could forgive him. And he's claiming that forgiveness here and the confidence that he has in the cleansing power of God. And I shall be whiter than snow. When we come before God to ask for forgiveness, he's promised us that he will be faithful and he will be just to forgive us of all our sin and all of our unrighteousness. What a great promise he's given us. And we can, we can have that same confidence that David has when we say, wash me, Lord, and I shall be whiter than snow. By the way, that kind of faith that God will forgive can be hard for some of us, right? There have been things that maybe you have done in your past that you still struggle with. Can God really forgive that? Or the intellectual knowledge, uh, the mental knowledge is, yeah, I know he can forgive me, but we keep questioning, has he forgiven me? Has he really forgiven me? And I know we might not be able to forget, and because the Bible tells us that he cast our sins as far as what? East is from the West. It's gone. And we can't do that. Our finite minds have struggle. We can't. But we can learn to trust Him and by faith that He has forgiven us. And boy, is that one of the more, most freeing things to know that the God of the universe has forgiven you completely. It's gone. And that's what David had that kind of confidence. And the last thing he says is blot out. Blot out all my iniquities. And that word blot refers to remove writing from a book perhaps even removing an indictment that's been on the pages, charges against them that have been erased out of the book. Now, what's interesting about that, that, uh, that word blot out, I, I did a little research and found this, uh, this, this word called palimpsets. I'm going to say it wrong, palimpsets. And I'll put it up on the screen in just a minute so you can see how it's spelled. But back in ancient times, they would have a papyrus or another type of ancient writing material for a book. And they would write in that book, but over time, that book might become, you know, they didn't need that text anymore. So what they would do is someone would, would rub out all that they could of the text. They couldn't get it all out, but they would rub as much as they could off that page. And then they would turn the page the other way, and they would write new text going the other way. And they have actually uh, uh, scrolls that were found with texts from, from Scripture that were like this. And there are a lot of other, not just Scripture texts that are found like this, but other ancient texts. But you can see with this picture that there was text very faint going north and south that's been rubbed out. And then someone comes back in later and writes the text east to west. 
uh, or west to east, if it's Hebrew. Uh, and so, no, it would be east to west, yeah. So you see, you see that, that's that idea of palimpsests. And that's kind of the picture that David's using here is that it would be, that it would be rubbed out. This purging, this cleansing, this blotting out is only possible with a great, great cost. And this is where we come back to, or come to verse 7, when he says, purge me with hyssop. I think that those four words might be the most important in this entire psalm. Purge me with hyssop. What is, what is a hyssop? Anybody know? It's a what? It's a plant. It's a plant. And I don't, there might be varieties that are roses, but more in the mint family. I, uh, I've got a kind of a modern day picture of what one looks like. And uh, the first time I believe it's mentioned is in Exodus as it refers to Passover. And the Israelites were commanded as they slaughtered the Passover lamb to put the blood in a bowl and they were to do what with that blood? Remember? Yeah, doorpost, lentil, exactly. How were they to, what were they to use to wipe it on the doorpost and lentil? Hyssop, yes, exactly. So you could gather up some of those and it kind of served as a brush uh, in the Old Testament. And so it's mentioned there. It's also mentioned in, in several of the uh, ceremonial procedures in the Old Testament about people that were defiled, how they would use those and sprinkle blood and that. Also, it's mentioned in Hebrews 9, verses 19 through 11. And this is referring back to the Mosaic Covenant. Um, but it's mentioned in Hebrews 9, 19 and 22. And I'm going to read these. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying... This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sin. No forgiveness of sin. I think David understood this. And when he was asking that God cleanse him with the hyssop, he meant cleanse me by the blood. Forgive me, regard me as clean on the basis of the innocent victim of the one that's died to shed this blood. Now, David obviously is thinking of the sacrifice of, of the goat or the lamb or the, or the bull. But now, this is how we come to God because we need that same forgiveness. And again, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And it's on the basis of the shed blood, not of the lamb, not of the bull, but of the lamb, Jesus Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that we find God's mercy and we find God's forgiveness in the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. So I thought that was just the, a, a neat little thing there that David includes with the hyssop, purge me with hyssop. All right, let's go on to number four, his plea for restoration, his plea for restoration. And now this is when we, you know, we, we, he's been talking about the, the, the necessity of being forgiven, the pardon, and now we really move more toward the, the need for purity in David's life. And when you think about it, forgiveness is only part of our need. Uh, David, again, was aware that, his, that he was a sinner, and he sinned because he was a sinner. And because he's a sinner, he's going to continue to sin, and again, and again, and again. And therefore, he needs something to change on the inside. He needs an inward renewal. He's going to refer to it as a clean heart. And now he's crying out to God for this restoration, this purity. And, and I think 
one of the things as I was reading is I got to this part and, and you're hearing David cry out for creating me a clean heart, renew a right spirit in me, that it just reinforces the idea that everything, his, his cry for forgiveness, his plea for forgiveness was not just, okay, I got caught, please forgive me, let's, like, let's get things back to normal and I can move on. No, it was much deeper than that for David. And it should always be much deeper than that for us as well. That Yes, we cry out for God's forgiveness, but we pray that God would renew our heart, recognizing that we are a sinner that will continue to sin unless God changes us from within. And so David here again, we see him asking God for three things in this section. Three things. The first thing, he cries out in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. And right alongside of that, he says, and renew in me a right spirit, a clean heart. But I, let's look just at that first part, create in me a clean heart. That word create is the same word that we find in Genesis when we talk about, when, when Moses talks about God creating the universe. And that word, that Hebrew word, bara. What does that mean, bara, that, that word create? Does anybody know? Creating out of nothing. I think I heard someone say, exactly. That's, the, that's, the, that's what that word means. That, that, that's the type of creative power that God has. So he can create something out of nothing. Now, we have been given a creative spirit. We create things. But do we create something out of nothing? No. We kind of think we do. Like if you're an artist and you draw something, like, yeah, I made this out of nothing. Well, no, you got the materials from somewhere. You got the canvas from somewhere. You know, you didn't create it. You can't create anything out of nothing. You start with God's raw materials or something, you know, the materials that are there. But God can create something out of nothing. And that's what David is asking God. I believe David here is asking God for a miracle. He's asking God to do something because he knows his heart well. He knows there's nothing good there. He knows his heart is evil. He knows he is a sinner. And so he's asking God to do a miracle in his life, to create a clean heart that he could never do on his own. The, the, the most reformation he could create would only could be destroyed in instance anyway because of that evilness of his heart. So he's saying, God, he's crying out, please, I, I pray that you would create in me a clean heart. Do a miraculous work in my life. And I love that. I think that's a great prayer for all of us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize, just as Paul did, there's, no, there's nothing good that dwells within me. There's nothing good that dwells within me. So God created me a clean heart. Man, what if we started every day with that prayer? <laughs> After we confessed our sins before God and cried out on the basis of His mercy to forgive us, to cleanse us, and we said, God created, created me a clean heart. Do a miraculous work in my heart today. Allow me to live a life that's pleasing to you that I know I can never do on my own. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, renew that a new spirit within me. And that's what David's crying out to God for. The second thing we see in verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This part of David's prayer has caused some problems for folks. Is David worried about losing his salvation? Is David saying, God, don't take your, your Holy Spirit away from me? You know, what is, what, is, what is David saying here? I really believe that David is not talking about obviously losing his salvation here at all, but instead he's acknowledging that he cannot live a holy life without God and the power of God in his life. He can't do it, just like you can't do it. He's saying, God, I need you in my life. And, you know, creating me a, a clean heart. And, and, and as soon as you do that, 
you know, stay here and give me the power and the strength to, to live out this life that I'm called to live out. I can't do it on my own. I need the power of your Holy Spirit empowering me continually. None of us can live a holy life apart from what God can do in our lives. Number three, and then, and I, I love this part. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Rejoice to me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He knew something was missing in his life. That sin, that sin in his life had robbed him of the joy. And isn't it ironic that, that sin looks enticing and sin looks like it's what will bring us joy, only that when we stumble into the sin thinking this is what will bring us joy, it robs us of our true joy, of our salvation. That's what sin does. You know, it, it always overpromises and underdelivers. That's just the nature of sin. And boy, does it look good. And boy, is it shiny. And boy, is it seducing. And boy, is it seductive. And boy, is it something that we feel like we can't live without. And it's going to make my life better. And it's going to make my life complete. And man, if I just follow my heart. And, and, and before we know it, what felt like it was going to be the thing that was going to complete us, make us happy, give us joy, has brought us the greatest sorrow, the greatest grief. And it might not happen right away. Sometimes it happens pretty quick. Other times it takes a while. But it ultimately will bring sorrow. Ultimately, it will steal the joy of our salvation. And, and what is the joy of our salvation? It's, it's knowing that, that we are a child of God, that we have eternity secure, that we have this amazing grace and love displayed in our lives through, through the Holy Spirit, that we, will, we, will, we, we are able to enter into the presence of the creator of the universe. The list goes on and on of the things that should bring us joy. And, they, and, and I guess the, 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 the thing that perhaps because of our lives, understanding the temporal nature of our lives, when we begin to think about eternity and spending that in the presence of the Lord versus spending it apart from Him in hell. And so that can bring us joy as well. And so there's this joy of our salvation, the relationship, the closeness that we can have, that sweetness. And, and anybody, you know, when you were first saved, you remember that joy. And, 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 and that should not be something that fades as we go further. In fact, if anything, it should grow. Maybe there will be times where we, we kind of forget that joy or lose that joy because of sin and brokenness in our relationship with God. But the goal is that we would ha experience the joy. And so David's crying out, I want that joy back. Have you ever been there in your life? I just, I just want the joy of my salvation back. And, it, and whether it's sin in your life, and usually it is sin, and maybe it's you know, a very overt sin, or maybe it's just Maybe it's kind of a, a sin of omission and things you should be doing that you aren't doing, that you know God's called you to do, but you've lost the joy of your salvation. I think crying out, God created me a clean heart and God, I pray for the joy of my salvation. Not only losing the joy, but he talks um, a little bit later uh, about the fact that his, he felt pain, physical pain in this sorrow. He talked about his, felt like his bones were broken. And that's another thing that sin will just do physical damage to you. I mean, that's, the, that's what sin does. It, it can really harm us physically. And so he's crying out, God, please restore the joy of my salvation. Righteousness is the only thing that restores the joy of our salvation. So David's plea for restoration. And now number five, the promise to teach others. Verse 13 uh, through 17, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. I'm just going to stop right there. I'm not going to read the, the whole section. We'll look at some of the other parts of this verse, but I want to start there because David, having been forgiven, cleansed, and renewed by God, now recognizes that he has a duty to those around him, that he has a responsibility to 
share what God has done in his life as a sinner to other sinners. That he wants to, them to be able to get to the same point that he's at now. So he proclaims to God, I'm going to teach these two things to sinners. And what does he say in verse, uh, verse 13 or uh, verse 12? He says, I'm going to teach sinners God's way and God's righteousness. God's way in verse 13. I'm sorry, not verse 12, verse 13. I'm going to teach sinners God's way and God's righteousness. Actually, God's righteousness comes in verse 14, the next verse. So what does he mean when he says, I will teach transgressors your way? I think the way probably means God's way with sinners, how he deals with sin, how he counts them as righteous based on the basis of the sacrifices, which points, by the way, those sacrifices in the Old Testament all pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins. And, and take a moment, I want to look back at, at Psalm 32 for just a, just a quick second, because I think that Psalm 32 is a fulfillment of this vow that he made before God. Because he said he, he wants to teach sinners God's ways. And so verse, or chapter 32 probably was written sometime later, but I think this is his opportunity to teach those sinners. And look what he says in the very first, verse, first two verses of chapter 32. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Does that sound familiar, that, that, those two verses? Paul quotes those almost word for word in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Not exactly, but pretty close, exact. He's quoting David, Psalm 32 here uh, in, in, uh, in Romans 4. As he's talking about the doctrine of justification by the grace of God through faith and trust. And I thought, that's pretty cool that here's David, years before Christ, years before reading Paul's very extensive teaching on the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And here's David talking about it when he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Remember, when we're justified, we move from being condemned to being declared not guilty, right? That's what that word justify means. We're not guilty. And so here's David is saying, Blessed is the man now who the Lord, who was a sinner, who was, is a transgressor, but now God counts him, counts no iniquity against him. Man, this sounds like, I mean, David's got, got some gospel-centered teaching and preaching going on in his Psalm 32. But remember, he said he wanted to teach transgressors God's ways. And so that's what he's doing here, right? He's like, okay, let me teach you. This is what you can experience through God's forgiveness. And that's what gospel teaching and preaching is today, right? Where we talk about what Christ has done for us and the fact that we can know that we are justified as well, that we have gone from condemned guilty to not condemned, not guilty before a holy and righteous God based on God's grace and mercy and our confession of faith in Him by grace through faith and what Christ has done for us on the cross. David felt very qualified to teach this message of God's grace and mercy to sinners. Why? Because he'd experienced it. And here's the principle that I think is so true for us, is that when we have experienced God's forgiveness, and if you are here as a born-again believer, you have experienced God's amazing forgiveness. When you have experienced God's forgiveness in your life, there should be a natural inclination to want to tell others about that grace and mercy that you've experienced. That there should be a desire that you got something you didn't deserve, 
God's amazing grace and forgiveness. And now you want to share that with others, just as David. And so in your prayer, as you're asking for God's forgiveness and you're crying out for him to create in you a new heart, maybe, just maybe, you might begin to say, God, give me an opportunity to share my story with a sinner today. God, give me the opportunity to teach a transgressor your ways. Now that's a bold prayer, right? That's a bold prayer. I think David fulfilled it multiple times over. But that's a bold prayer. And I would encourage you to, to pray that kind of prayer of confession, of renewal, but also, God, I'll be your person. I'll be your spokesperson. And what's amazing is I think if we become more conscious in praying a prayer like that, God, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll teach transgressors, I'll teach sinners your ways, that he's going to start putting more opportunities in our lives or maybe we're just going to become more aware of those opportunities in our lives to share the gospel with somebody else, to have those conversations. But if we're not praying about it in the morning, if we're not praying about it in the evening, we're probably going to miss those. And they're going to go by. Maybe we'll recognize them later. Like, oh, man, that was a great opportunity. I've had those. I, unfortunately, I've had too many where I, I think I just had a conversation with somebody. They said something that had a perfect lead in to start talking about God or his word or the gospel. And I just missed it completely. Maybe if I'd have been praying this prayer earlier, I might have been a little more sensitive. I might have been a little more aware that God was giving me this opportunity to share and to teach sinners his ways. And then the second thing in, in, this, in his promise to teach others, in verse 14, he, he talks about declaring God's righteousness. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So he's, he wants to sing about the righteousness of God, and not so much just God's righteousness, but I think he's talking about God's righteousness in the justification of sinners, that, that we as sinners, again, through that, the blood sacrifice and ultimately through the sacrifice of Christ, experience God's forgiveness, but we also experience the righteousness of Christ, that God sees us. Not only does he not see us as guilty, he sees us as not guilty, but he sees us as righteous, Right? That we have that imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Talk about blowing my mind. When I, I, I thinking about that, that again, knowing my heart, <laughs> knowing, you know, who I am. And yet God, because of the blood of Christ and, and, and Christ taking on and paying the penalty for my sin, God sees me as his child, as the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What? <laughs> yes. And I think that's possibly what David's talking about here when he's talking about I want to sing aloud of your righteousness that I am experienced your righteousness because of the blood sacrifice because of the forgiveness of my sin but teaching and declaring is not the only thing David wants to do he also wants to praise God look at verse 15 and following his oh Lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices, listen, here's what God wants. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, David was broken, and a contrite heart, contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. O oh Lord, open my lips. Open my lips that I would declare your praises. All right, last thing. Well, this is a short one, so don't worry. We're, gonna be, we're almost done. A concluding prayer. Really, it's a prayer for the people of Israel. And I put concluding prayer, but 
thinking later. He's really praying for the people of Israel. Look at verse 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will, offer, will be offered on your altar. He's asking God as he, he's really praying for the nation of Israel, probably concerned about his own sin and what damage his own sin might have caused, the concern that he had, but he's praying for the nation of Israel and asking God to do good to the nation that hopefully his, his sin has not negatively impacted, and if it has, that God would strengthen the nation spiritually in this time. As I said at the beginning, David's two greatest needs are what? They start with a P. Pardon and purity. These are perhaps two of your greatest needs as a child of God, that you need God's forgiveness and you need God's purity, that you begin tomorrow morning, or maybe if you have a prayer time in the evening, just confessing to God your sin, Asking Him to forgive you. Confessing specifically what you have done that you know has fallen short of His mark. That you have crossed His boundary. That you know that is evil in your own heart. And confessing that before God. And the knowing that He will forgive you, right? That He's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. We can, we can claim that promise. And then we say, God, create in me an, a, a clean heart. Because I know my own heart and I'm going, to be doing, I'm going to be right back here tomorrow asking for the same sin to be forgiven unless you do a miracle of, of creating a clean heart, a new heart in me and asking for that. And then, just maybe, to pray to say, God, I want to teach others your ways. I want to teach sinners your, your ways. I want, to, I want to share your gospel with someone today that needs to hear of the hope they can have in Jesus Christ. Open my lips to be able to do that.